0: Hi, I'm Elise Kennedy. Welcome to Jardin's Startup Tech Series, where we host entrepreneurs, venture funds, and technology companies on trends across the industry. Today with me, I'm joined by King Go from San Francisco VC Fund Headlines. Thanks for joining us on the show, King.
1: Thanks for having me, Elise.
0: So to start off, I'll turn it over to you. Can you give us a bit of background about yourself and as well as Headlines?
1: So I'm a principal here at Headline. Um, We're a global venture capital firm. So I've been around for uh, nearly 25 years. I originally founded out of Germany and Hamburg all the way back when, and then moved to San Francisco um, shortly thereafter. Used to be called eVentures up until about six months ago. So if you're doing any kind of background research, um, that's where you'll find us. We're a $2 billion US assets under management firm today, investing across both early and late stage venture capital. And we have offices all around the world, um, and that really is our shtick, the international understanding. Standing and just how it is that we help our companies. So we have offices headquartered here in San Francisco, but also have many offices across Europe, Latin America, and Asia. And so we have boots on the ground across all those regions, have about 50 investment professionals, um, increase, investing you know, series A all the way through pre IPO round. So you might know some of more of our uh, well-known investments like Bumble and Farfetch and GoPuff. So certainly, certainly have been big fans of both consumer and enterprise um, business models over time. Um, across all parts of the world. So we're now investing out of our sixth generation of venture funds. And so you know I think we've done a fairly decent job of it to date. Our fifth fund, um, our 2015 fund, is already sitting at a five times MOIC, about a 76 times IRR. We're uh, banging the table about um, some of the stuff we've been doing and continue to be investing pretty heavily.
0: And King, if I didn't know what an MOIC was, what is that? (laughs) Uh,
1: It's basically the return on our um, invested capital.
0: Um, And I'm curious, how do you monetize your assets? Are they all monetized by going to market and listing them? Or do you sell through different series and dilute yourself? Can you talk a bit more so to that side?
1: Yeah. So as you probably know about the private equity world, there's a few different asset classes. And so we're squarely in in venture capital as opposed to growth equity or, you know, more traditional PE. So the type of investments that we're looking to make are certainly much more of the ilk of high growth profile companies where, you know, they're essentially market changing um, type situations where, you know, they have the ability to redefine how companies and how customers operate, right? So, you know, for example, Salesforce all the way back in the day completely redefined how customer relationship management has been done overall, right? So those are the type of companies that we're, we're seeking to invest. So as a function of this, the type of companies that we're investing in are those that we believe have the potential to be public companies, medium to longer term. So we generally try to find companies that have the ability to, to be fund returners, right? And so companies that go public, obviously some end up exiting via M&A um, or any other or other means, but we generally look to have our companies go public at some point.
0: Interesting. You're right in the tech hub of San Francisco. Can you tell us what you're seeing on the ground in that tech space?
1: Yeah, well, as everybody knows, it's, it's certainly been evolving meaningfully over the last 18 months with the onset of the pandemic. There's been a couple of things that have changed, you know, specifically over those over that intervening period. And I boil it down to two things, really. One is the obviously the macro economy associated with that is, is interest rates and inflation and all the and, you know, the associated growth coming out of the pandemic. And the second piece here is just the confidence that people now have in technology right? So if I break down those pieces into parts, right? So if you look at just the broader macro economy and what's going on with interest rates, you know, if you look at supply and demand, pretty simply, there's just a lot of capital chasing, you know, the same number of companies, right? And so when you look at the yield curve today, so particularly the difference between the two-year and the 10-year, it's very flat, right? And so essentially, you're seeing a whole lot of investors come in to basically searching for yield, right? And so a lot of money is entering the private markets, private equity, venture capital, alternative investments, um, alongside um, you know public markets within you know the Nasdaq or, or otherwise. But essentially, you're seeing a, a raft of capital come in, attracting a, a number of startups. And so just to add the numbers, the amount of capital that's been raised within the VC industry in the first half of um, first half of 2021 alone, 74 billion dollars has been raised by VC. Firms, right? And then within that, US startups have also managed to attract $150 billion from investors over that time. So, you know, the, and so that's obviously money that's been raised over the last, you know, three to five years. And so you just have all this money going into a fairly finite universe. Um, and so there's plenty of supply of capital. So that's all on the supply side. Mm-hmm. And then on the second piece, you know, on the demand side around the quality of companies, you know, everybody is now aware of tech, right? So it's not like the dot-com boom where you, know, you had companies like pets.com who you know, were v- being valued on you know, dollars per eyeball and things <laughs> like that, right? Where there was no underlying business model and, you know, they were basically just, you know, they all smoke and mirror. What you really have now is very high quality companies all the way from, you know, Afterpay and, you know, Atlassian. These are real companies solving real problems, right? Yeah. Um, and so what this has resulted in is that the adoption of technology has accelerated, right? Because these are all high quality companies and this just starts to really result in a in a firewheel effect where success begets success. And so you see a lot of founders now, a lot of, well, sorry, a lot of employees of these companies uh, spinning off these high quality tech companies to found their own company mm. and so they're able to build product with their knowledge with their understanding of market and then also selling their products to other sophisticated folks and so this is all to say the quality of companies continues to increase markedly so even when i first started venture investing six years ago now you know the, there is very very significant difference in the quality of companies today than there were six years ago right so the confidence that so the investors now have much more confidence in investing in technology companies today than they ever have so mm. when you add that supply and that demand together uh, it's really resulting in what seems like very frothy valuation but it can be justified in many ways and you know outside of any external macroeconomic shock or war and anything like that, it's hard to see a reason for this to be changing anytime soon. Mm,
0: They're very good points that you raised there. And again, we're seeing that as well in the listed listed space as well as it sounds like the private space too. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you did mention earlier headlines, it has ideally finds those companies that perhaps do want to come to market in the future. I'd love to hear your views about, you know, those companies that are staying private and maybe staying private longer. You know, we've got Canva in Australia, it's a global player but you know they've been private for a long period of time um, at this stage why do you think some companies are going down that private path
1: yeah well I guess if you take a step back and think about why companies went public in the first place right there's many reasons but I guess the principal reasons really were you know twofold one is access to capital Mm. and number two is legitimizing the company to you know to their ecosystem whether it be customers stakeholders partners etc those two things are now no longer specific to just public markets right so with with the discussion we just had around the inflow of capital into private markets, access to capital is very easy, right? And yeah. so you're seeing you know very large fund managers, whether it be the Wellingtons of the world, you know, they're making very aggressive forays into into private markets. And so and then the whole point around leg- legitimizing companies, you know, when you think about the Fortune 500 here in the US, even you know back in our in our old Morgan Stanley days, the ability for them to work with startups was almost negligible because they had very strict protocol around the you know the underlying sustainability of these. Stuff. But that has changed markedly over the last, you know, two, three years where large corporates are much more happy to work with startups, right? You know, it was only until three years ago where Morgan Stanley wouldn't work with this little company called Zoom, right? And how that has changed, right? So, and now you have these large Fortune 500 companies, whether it be... You know, Walmart or ExxonMobil, et cetera, they're all happy to work with much smaller startups today. So the whole legitimacy point that public markets brought is being obfuscated somewhat. Having said that, you know, I don't think private markets, uh, public markets will disappear. Right in terms yeah. of an attractive exit point for, for startups, right? Because it's eventually these companies, particularly venture funds, need to exit. Right. So venture funds own anywhere between 20 to 50 percent of businesses when they when they get to these very late stages, and they're not evergreen funds. They need to return capital to their investors. The outcome here is they either need to sell to other private investors or the company needs to go public. And so I don't think it's a fact of you know, companies not going private. It's just a matter of going private much later. And so when you do see companies come public, whether it be a Stripe or a New Bank, et cetera, they'll come to market, but just at, you know, $100 billion type valuation. So um, I don't think it spells the end of public markets at all. I think it's just um, it's just a, a shifting in terms of timing.
0: It's exciting. So we might have some really large cap stocks <laughs> to come in the future in our listed space. Yep. <laughs> um, now, I'm curious to you know, we've talked about previously, together the rise of vertical software and embedded financial services um, and APIs. Can you talk a bit, more about you know what that means and and what the trends you're seeing are in that space
1: yeah so you know fintech has definitely come into its own over the last couple of years certainly right so if you look at categories of funding within the venture capital world fintech is certainly one of the largest categories that money is going into so you know afterpay is obviously a fantastic example and that was money um, in public markets but in private markets it's definitely attracting a ton of capital and Mm -hmm. you know ahead of you know, healthcare and many other verticals. You know, when you take a step back and just consider the, the basic tenets of financial services, right? To be able to originate a financial product so whether it be a loan, whether it be a credit card, savings account, you really needed to, or, you know, buy insurance products or otherwise, you really needed to bank or an insurance company or a, you know, a um, an investment fund to be able to do so, right? And those, all those firms that what they have in common is a massive balance sheet, right? And that's the only way they could actually originate those products. And then to distribute it, they would either have massive brick and mortar presence, or they would go through their own distributors or uh, brokers and otherwise. So with the onset of technology, that's Has changed dramatically, right? And so today, you don't need to be a bank to originate financial products, right? In Mm -hmm. many countries around the world. Here in the US, yes, you do need to be a bank to issue financial products, but you can issue them through other intermediaries, right? Whereas in other jurisdictions, you can actually issue them directly um, without necessarily being a bank. So, you know, with the onset of software and and technology and more specifically APIs, what this has allowed you to do is deconstruct how it is that banks have traditionally. Um, built their financial products, right? So if you think about how, you know, a Wells Fargo or a Chase works out here in the US, their entire stack is premised upon basically one core piece of technology. It's called core banking software. And there's only a small handful of operators in the space called, and they're called Fiserv, FIS, Jack Henry. They basically do everything from, you know, basic ledger, you know, debits and credits, all the way through to credit card issuance um, and all the reconciliation in between payments, etc. cetera. Right. And so, but essentially today you have these new API first software companies, infrastructure companies that are basically decomposing this core banking infrastructure into many different pieces. Right. So with very, you know, small number of lines of code, you can actually build a ledger system. You can actually do credit card issuance. You can do debit card issuance. You can um, set up your own bank account with, with APIs. Right. And so, what this is allowing allowing folks to do is, you can either be the infrastructure company that builds this builds these decomposed core banking um, components, or you can be a company that actually puts these all together to create your own product, right? And so, you're seeing companies like Revolut and New Bank and Chime. They're basically next generation challenger banks that are being composed off of these underlying APIs, these underlying infrastructures uh, to create their own financial products, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, companies like um, Chime are much more focused on, you know, a specific segment of the market that have either been underbanked or just don't have, you know, for folks that Wells Fargo don't have good reach out to. So, um, so that's what that's what this whole new world of embedded financial services is really um, is really starting to uh, to drive. That's just one example of what embedded financial services can do around, you know, just core banking. But there's many other. You know, offshoots around what that looks like. So we're closing an investment into a company that um, is not dissimilar to Afterpay, but it's a warranty insurance, mm-hmm. right? So basically, when you go to your po- point of sale and you want to buy um, your uh, your next favorite electronic device, you can buy um, very clean warranties at that point of sale, right? Rather than going into you know, buying your next TV and paying through the nose for that insurance, that warranty product. And
0: mm-hmm. so there's
1: just many different ways where you can now access and buy financial products that aren't reliant on the traditional um, banks and insurance companies and brokers, et cetera. Um, And typically, uh, you know, cheaper, better, faster products for the most part.
0: I really am curious about that because we still have so much capital tied up in the listed space in the banks. So what do you think is the future for the banks with this, you know, growth that you're seeing within those embedded financial services?
1: You know, so Australia is a really interesting ecosystem because the banking ecosystem is much higher quality than the rest of the world. (laughs) So (laughs) for for many reasons, which we don't need to go into today, but um, the, you know, for example, the underbanked population in most countries around the world is significant. Right. Um, Where access to, you know, to financial success is much more difficult than it is in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and then the the underlying infrastructure with which the Australian banks have been comprised of are just frankly higher quality. The rails are much better. Um mm-hmm. and so the ability to the relative ability to um to disrupt the banks in Australia relative to other banks around the world is a little bit more limited. Having said that, that nobody is ever completely safe from from innovation, right? Mm. And so the ability to build new products is probably going to have to be much more creative in areas where there is just where there's zero penetration today, right? And so one company in Australia, you know, Ben over at Zella, Z-E-L-L-E-R, is essentially trying to rebuild how business banking is done um, in Australia today. And they've raised money from some of the highest, highest quality and smartest investors, you know, addition and spark. Um, And so, you know, he's got a he's got a tall ask ahead of him, but his background there at Square should set him up very well to to at least have a very strong run at building a very strong um, B2B business offering in Australia.
0: It's very interesting. It goes back to your point around some of those people within the tech companies coming through and starting their own businesses. Now, you talked about a few of the offshore markets and we've got stocks here like Car Sales and Seeks with exposure to international markets. So I might tap into your wealth and knowledge in that space. What are you seeing across Latin America, Africa and a few of those other markets we probably don't talk about as much in Australia but our stocks do have exposure to?
1: Yeah, I highly encourage everybody listening to spend a lot more time thinking about particularly emerging markets, right? So, yes, everybody's been talking about emerging markets, you know, since the dawn of time. But what has really shifted in the last, I'd say, the last 12 to 18 months, particularly with the onset of COVID, is a dramatic increase in the the quality of companies that are being founded internationally alongside just the 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 amount of funding that's gone into that space right so again this kind of harks back to the the what we talked about at the, at the top of the call but you're starting to see a lot of talent um, start to trickle down right from companies that may have been founded you know 10 years ago they're now coming out to found companies so you know, for for example, in Latin America, Mercado Libre, which is you know the the largest marketplace in Latin America, you know they're spawning a whole bunch of offshoots um, in different elements of the market. Likewise with Africa, likewise with um, Southeast Asia, they're just they're popping up left, right, and center. But what has really accelerated in COVID is proliferation of remote work, right? And so you've seen a lot of high quality companies here in the US or in Europe hire basically cheaper talent in Africa, in in Brazil, et cetera. And so it's essentially educating these work in these emerging markets with basically best in class ways of doing things,
0: yeah. right?
1: And so now these folks have gone on to found their own companies um, to basically uh, to build products and build companies that is as high quality as, you know, any West Silicon Valley company. Right. And so to encapsulate this, um, again, some more numbers, but um, in Latin America, um, you know, funding up until let's call it third quarter 2020, you know, would typically be between, you know, one and $1.5 billion worth of funding um, per quarter. That's now accelerated to something like 4 to $5 billion. So that market has tripled in in a year alone. Right. In Africa, it's also tripled, you know, in the last um, in the last quarter alone, Africa has attracted $1 billion worth of funding. Right. And so these are massive opportunities. So to the extent that there's any Aussie companies looking to diverse, you know, looking to invest in international markets, whether it be a car sales or a Seek or otherwise, um, they're certainly very attractive places to be in. So, you know, in Latin America, we, um, so New Bank is a company that's been invested in by Warren Buffett. That company is a, a challenger bank um, disrupting all the traditional banks in Brazil. That's now going public at a, you know, an estimated $55 billion US valuation. Um, and, and then we invested in another lending company um, in Latin America um, at, you know, a billion dollar plus valuation. That's growing incredibly quickly. We, uh, we invested in a, a Nigerian payments business at a billion dollar valuation. They're growing very well as well. So certainly, and that company is called Flutterwave. And so there's certainly a lot of legitimacy um, now being applied to each of those markets.
0: Interesting. Um, and I know we've done a lot of talking around the fintech sector and the growth there, but we often hear about the tech that's evolving in healthcare. Can you talk to any trends that you're seeing over a overseas in that space and has this accelerated during COVID?
1: Uh, the short answer is yes. Right. So the, the nuance about healthcare is that it's obviously very uh, directed by the regulatory environment that companies operate in. So the proliferation of US healthcare technology companies will be in certain spaces that might not have any relevance in Europe or in Australia. So it is, So you can't just apply uh, you know, this one, you know, one Band-Aid solution that you know, all healthcare is going to be uh, well invested in from a technology point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, in the US, I can comment on this because we've got some really interesting investments in this space. Um, you know, we, uh, we invested in a company called Sprout Therapy, um, uh, late last year, and we've doubled down on it a couple of times um, since in uh, in recent rounds. Um, but essentially, what this is doing is redefining how um, ABA therapy or autism care is basically delivered, right? And so historically, it's been very brick and mortar um, based, and you know, it's based. There hasn't been any data to define how autism care is being done. Um, but with the onset of COVID, um, you know, government regulation has changed across all a lot of elements of healthcare where, where um, it's, okay to do, uh, it's okay to do video visits, right? Video therapy, video healthcare visits. And so um, they've mandated that insurance companies also accept it, right? Because prior to COVID, there was a, a general reluctance to reimburse uh, these health tech companies because of perceived lower quality care, right? But that's obviously changed significantly over COVID because there was no other alternative. And it's since been proven that, you know, you can have very high quality care delivered via video as well. Right. And so Sprout has certainly taken advantage of this. Um, And so it's basically mixing tech enabled services plus data plus analytics to really deliver an even better quality of care to, uh, to autistic children. Um, And so, you know, that's just one example. There's many other different examples of how, um, how, video and how virtual care has entered the realm. So whether it be in mental health or in musculoskeletal care, et cetera, uh, there's just many different ways um, that it's upending the ecosystem here. So I'm very bullish on on the future of digital health, um, not only here in the US, but internationally.
0: Fantastic. And last one from me. Do you want to share any investments? I know you've shared a few over the way, but perhaps some that you haven't mentioned about um Success stories or even failures. And how you approach valuation and returns.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, not many venture capitalists love talking about their failures. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that's why I asked. <laughs> the, the the dirty secret is that 90% of VC investments go under anyway, right? Very so that'd be I could fill in this whole uh, this whole podcast with the companies that haven't done so well. Um, and you know, that's just the that's the risk profile of the game. Um but on the on the ones that do do well, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of luck involved. That's also another another dirty secret. A lot of companies you're never quite sure at the start, but the ones that do do well, um, you know, will look very obvious in hindsight. So you know, a couple of the ones that I'd that I'd point out, I guess one that is a lot more relevant recently is a company called GoPuff. So this is a whole. This is basically a company. I think it just raised at about 15 billion dollars US. We invested a. 50 million dollar valuation, five zero. Um, so that's been quite a good kicker for us. But essentially, this is part of the whole very short um, delivery, basically allowing people to buy uh, things like their Mars bars or chips or groceries, you know, within 30 minutes, right? And so they use these micro fulfillment centers all through the U- U.S. to be able to facilitate those deliveries in a very short amount of time. Um, so basically, capturing share away from you know traditional groceries or from from the corner stores. So you know this was this is a company that we invested in many years ago, well, a couple of years ago. Um, but it was not obvious at the time, right? Because it's relatively capex heavy, relatively low gross margins. But what really got us was that you know the the consumers were buying multiple times per month, right? And so any type of company, and then the unit economics associated with uh, with these customers have just been stellar. And so they've expanded. Um, Nationally, all through the U.S., um, and have also started um, laying down some some groundwork internationally. And so you know, we're we're super excited by uh, the future value prop of uh, of that company as well. So it's another company that we've uh, that we're proud of. is a company called Farfetch. The problem that they're they're solving it's a fifteen billion dollar company now listed on the I think the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and so uh, essentially, the problem there was you know luxury companies like Gucci, etc. They didn't really have a great online presence, um, and so what uh, Farfetch does is aggregate all these various brands and lo- allows them to sell to consumers online through their marketplace. So it's you know it's solving what seems like a very simple problem, but it's just very logistically dif- difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know it's definitely part of the rising tides of e-commerce more broadly.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you again, King Girl from San Francisco, VC Fund Headlines. I really appreciate your time and I can't wait to circle around in a couple of months and hear what the latest is overseas.
1: This is a of fun, Elise. Thanks again for your time.